0: This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Let us pray. Dear Lord, as we approach your word today, Lord, to avoid disorder and to avoid the vile practice of sin, Lord, we must first submit that we are the cause of disorder. We are the cause of vile sin. And the flesh does not like to think of itself this way, in fact, very much the opposite. But the Scripture convicts and condemns the one who rises his thoughts above those of God, who who says that his word is more powerful and more intriguing and should have more effect than the words of God in Scripture. Lord, the truly converted soul does not do this. Though it may struggle, with its flesh, and it may struggle with its flesh's desire to elevate itself above God, the presence of the Holy Spirit will counteract this flesh and lead the Christian into holiness. Lead the Christian into order, true biblical order. Lord, one of the fruits of the spirits is that of self-control. Lord, and we all who share, Lord, that singular Holy Spirit given to us Lord, we know the truth about self-control. Lord, order must reign, or sin will. I can't serve two masters. One will rule over me. Which one? So let us seek order today, Lord, and let us dive into this text without hesitation, that even if we be the ones found out who have the disorder, Lord, it is gently and easily corrected by the presence of the Word of God. Lord, let it be the corrector today. May we pray. Amen. Once again, we have to consider the desert context. It's easy to be less jealous in a postmodern world with Internet and good AC. But far, far more difficult is living in the desert and your children going hungry at certain mealtimes because your crop had a little struggle, but the neighbors did not. And when your children cry, "I, I thirst, I hunger," it is easy for that bitter jealousy to rise about what the neighbor has. And selfish ambition, see, bitter jealousy has a cause. I want or think I need what that person has, and I covet it and I'm jealous for it. But the selfish ambition is the evil desire of flesh to elevate itself above the presence of holy God. That is why we all want to be the boss, because God speaks and things happen. And that's what a boss does, right, at work. He goes, hey, employee, do this, and the employee does it. That's a God-like role. And the flesh wants that. The flesh so desires to be elevated, not just equal with God, but above God. It's the very thing Satan began to attack immediately. Did God really say that? Can you really trust him? Is he really doing right by you? This is the flesh's attempt in its selfish ambition to take that bitter jealousy and rise to the level of great evil. Jealousy and selfishness are the roots of bitterness. J. Ronald Blue said in his commentary, true wisdom makes no room for bitter envy or for selfish ambition. This is nothing to glory about, to boast in. If we say these attitudes are godly, we lie and we boast against the truth. See what James is saying? If bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are running you and fueling you and causing your actions, don't say that I'm doing this for God. I'm doing it in God's name. Some of the most vile, evil leaders of world history did things in the name of a deity, did things in the name of God, wielded the church as a blunt instrument to hurt people. And in doing so, in their attempt to be like the Most High, they revealed that they are in fact like Satan. They desire to destroy, they desire to hurt, they desire to kill because of selfish ambition. And this is rising in each one of us all the time. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit if you be converted, but you also have this selfish ambition. There is a spiritual and a selfish war going on inside of you. Paul so clearly articulates this in Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I thank God he is the one. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 and 15 as a cross-reference here to support the text of James, about being called to freedom, not jealousy. Being called to love, not be bitter. We avoid disorder by recognizing and marking bitterness in our hearts and avoiding it, avoiding the situations that cause it, fixing the issues that are taking place in our lives. Galatians five thirteen, For you were called to freedom, brothers, Paul is telling the church, his brethren, God did not save you to let you wallow back into that sin. He called you to be free from it. You are called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't wield the very freedom God has given you as another blunt instrument to hurt those around you in your selfish ambitions. Paul says, but through love serve one another. Now there's a lot packed into that verse. You are called to freedom not because you are something, but because Jesus is, and He's the one who's granted freedom. He bought and paid for your freedom with His blood, with His life, and He's given it to you. And if you use this as an opportunity for the flesh, it's a slap in the face. It's a a denial of what Christ has done for you. Rather, you're called through love to serve one another. Now, this verse is saying you can only serve one another through love. Real love causes real service. Any other service without love is a product of selfish ambition. Even the, even the greatest charity of the earth, at some level, is going to deal with spiritual selfish ambition if they don't have love. You see the key here? That love is what I need. Love will fix the bitterness in my heart. Love will fix that selfish ambition that wants so desperately to do wrong. Love covers the multitude, as Paul says in Colossians. Through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everything about the Old Testament is summed up in that verse. You love your neighbor as yourself. Why can't I love my neighbor as myself? Why am I instead bitter and jealous and angry and hurt? There's two reasons. Number one, you're not really a Christian. Now that's not popular to say. It's not popular for people to hear. But it's true. Would you rather me tell you everything's hunky-dory and that was just a bad case of food poisoning you had It was just a bad week, bad night, bad year. Paul said, Check yourself to see if you're of the faith. It's so important to find out that I'm not converted so that I can be converted rather than live in denial and live under the guise of Christianity and face Jesus. And he looks at you and says, Depart from me. What would you rather have? Peace on earth or peace with God? You love your neighbor as yourself. The second reason. That you don't love your neighbor is selfish ambition is rising in your heart and has not been repented of, and it needs to be. Paul talks in Corinthians about destroying strongholds, the idea of taking spiritual strongholds in your mind and heart and destroying them. And that's difficult to do because most often our strongholds are the places we feel the most comfortable. But to love my neighbor as myself, to fulfill this law of the entire Old Testament summed up in one verse, I have to destroy those things that are stopping me from loving. So, we first have to establish that I am a baseline Christian, that I have indeed repented and believed in Jesus Christ. That is the starting point for Christianity. You sort of have to be with Jesus Christ to be a Christian. <laughs> from there, we go on into maturity. And we're all at different levels there. And that's okay, it's God's doing, not ours. What did Paul also say? I planted Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. In your maturity, the selfish ambition is going to rise. And one of the ways to mark and avoid it is to understand that selfish ambition is the opposite of loving your neighbor. And this kind of love here is an unconditional type of love. It's not based on what they do. It's not based on who they are. Because if it was, God wouldn't love you. How can he love sinners? Based on what they are. So if you love based on how people treat you, you're not going to love very well. And you won't love for very long. Because the flesh is evil and the people will treat you horribly. Instead, love because God loves. And the way God loves is unconditionally. Think about his children. Moses comes off that mountain, sees the people who for a very short amount of time were left alone. And they immediately created the golden calf. Now don't smirk. Don't go, ha <laughs> them silly Israelites. What goofballs. I would never do that. Yes, we would. Yes, we would. If we were honest, we could all go into each other's homes and help carry out the golden calves and carry them out into the yard and destroy them, couldn't we? Do you own a TV? There's one. Do you have a cell phone in your pocket? There's one. Do you have monuments in your house even to other things? I would never do that. Yes, you would. Because we already have. I'm a sinner. And so loving my neighbor can't be based on how people treat me. It has to be based on the love that God has. Those Israelites created that golden calf. And Moses pleads with God, Lord, don't destroy your people. Though he would have been justified to, he would have been able to, he would have been right to. But God did not. Because he loved unconditionally. He loved with a love that only comes from God that you and I can't get on our own. It has to come from a divine source. To love your neighbor as yourself is to walk in the very footsteps of Christ as he loved his neighbor. Look at verse 15. We have a warning. But if you bite and devour one another with that selfish ambition, that bitter jealousy, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. consumed by one another. Now, I'm not talking about a physical consuming here of murdering somebody. I'm talking a life zapped of joy and vibrancy and zest because of the world. A hollow shell of a person going through the motions. Even at church, just playing the Christian game and going through all the motions and coming on Sunday and singing and tithing and doing all the things we're supposed to do. But on the inside, it's hollow. It's empty. And the only thing that can fix that is Christ. And that's why so many people flock to the, to the preachers who don't preach Christ. Because he's convicting. Rather, preach instead that everything's great and you're wonderful and go, go have a great day. But you came in without a great day. You came in the opposite of wonderful. And the only thing that will fix the issue is Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour, you do the opposite of what Jesus did. We must be so careful of this, Christians. We are held to a higher standard in front of the world. Waitresses should not so often be able to say, I don't want to work Sunday afternoon. I don't want to bus at Sunday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Because they're the worst. The divorce rate should not be as equal in the church as it is in the world. In fact, it's often higher. The rates of sexual abuse are equal in the church. These things should not be so. Now, part of the issue is, is we have a whole lot of People and even organizations and even churches that are not truly following Christ. That's true. That's a problem. But these things should not be so and not be done so in his name. That's a real profaning of Christ's name. This is the biting and devouring that that the world does. Christian, we should not be acting like the world. Instead, we should be acting like our namesake. Watch out. Christians are called to love one another. Bitterness devours. It devours relationships. It can even devour churches. And it can devour pastors and and the strongest mature Christians. It can even devour the faith you seek. It can leave you the hollow shell, not able to minister, not able to, to witness, not able to be effective because bitterness and jealousy have consumed you. But there's hope. There's hope. If you're right on that line where you feel like, I I am bitter, I am selfish, I do have jealous ambition for something and someone else, Christ is here. His hand extended. His word clear. His first message in Mark. Repent. Turn from that sin. Come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest. This bitterness and jealousy we must avoid. We must mark it, understand it, and avoid it. If you do not, it will devour you. Like the one who plays with the poisonous snake and says, I won't get bit," it will. Let us move on. In verse 15 of James, he says, this is not the wisdom that comes from above. Now in verse 17 and 18 of this chapter, next week we'll see about wisdom that does come from above. But this is not that wisdom. This is the wisdom of men, the wisdom of the world, which in verse 15, James says, is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, first, it's terrestrial, so we have it's from the earth. It's not from heaven. It is unspiritual, which means it's not from the Holy Spirit. It's not guided by him. It's not because of his presence. It is the opposite of him, and it is demonic. Christian, if you don't believe today that demonic forces are rising against you, you need to read your Bible again. This is what Paul warns about. We don't fight with physical weapons, but spiritual weapons of warfare. In fact, I know that I've even faced a demon myself. Now, this may sound a little charismatic or Pentecostal, I'm just telling you the truth. I was working in Gainesville as an electrician. Another Christian guy and I got kind of paired up because we're both believers and got, you know, kind of got the same van together. We went to lunch one day in Gainesville. We were working at the library, I believe, I remember. And a lady approached us, and she was speaking in incantations and gibberish, talking about the spirits that were going to merge with other spirits and were going to join with her. And church, I I, I lie to you not, I looked into her eyes and they were cloudy, because she was not alone. And she was speaking this gibberish. And I didn't know what to do. So I just said, I don't know about all that, ma'am, but I serve Jesus Christ. And at the mention of the Lord's name, she recoiled as if slapped, backed away from me, turned, and went down the street, around the corner and out of sight. I looked into her eyes and they were cloudy. I know something was affecting her. I believe it was deep demonic possession. I do. But I can't be sure of that. That's just my opinion. What I am sure of was at the mention of the Lord's name, she fled. She fled. Now, whether that was because of demonic possession or her own sinful flesh, it matters not. She fled from the thing she needed to save her. And I, the, only, the only part of the story that makes me like, upset or makes me feel bad is I didn't chase after her. No, I'm serious. I mean, just in my mind, I go, I should have followed her saying, ma'am, turn to Jesus. He can save you. Repent right now. I'll pray with you. I didn't know what to do. I was sort of frozen. <laughs> and she left. This is demonic. This, this wisdom of the world is evil. It's unspiritual, it's not from God, and it's demonic. And how do you know the difference? Jesus Christ is the dividing line. His word marks the difference. Now, at the very mention of his name, she fled. But if she hadn't, I believe, Scripture allowed to her would have caused her to do the very same thing. And Scripture is the dividing line. How do we know how we ought to operate? For centuries, we've called uh, us Protestants have called it sola scriptura, Scripture alone is the guide and practice of the church. However, I want us to be careful, and I don't want to sound harsh. I've only been in this job for eight months now. Hate for it to end so soon. But Christian, please, I did this with my very own soul this week. I looked inside, and I found things guiding my life that were not scriptural. Now that sounds real bad, don't it? What am I talking about? Just culture, time my lifestyle, the way, the way I have to eat even. There's so many things the apostles did and commanded that I'm not even able to do because I live in a completely different culture from their inner city, first century culture. I can't even go house to house like they used to because the houses are not next to each other. But some things that guide us that are not scriptural are very very evil, and they're in danger of causing great harm to you. Now, I don't know what they particularly are, and I would rather you not raise your hand. (laughs) But I I just ask you as a Christian, in gentleness, I I ask you, and in fact I would say I beg you, look into your life. Are there things guiding you? Are there cultural practices moving you? Are, are, Are pressures of the world molding and shaping you, and these things are not of God because I just proved to you out of Scripture And if it's not of God, what is it earthly, unspiritual, and demonic? Now, I'm not saying going to church at a certain time, because that's when your church meets, is demonic or or anything like that. But what I am saying is this. It is amazing to me how quickly our flesh can be led away from the guidance of of God's Word and how culture can influence us so much That church actually begins to be a worship of our culture and not of Christ. Now, usually churches stay bottom shelf with this stuff, right? It's always about carpet or it's about some other thing. No, but I'm talking about how we treat others. How we deal with sin. Because on a fleshly level, sin is easy to deal with. You can either ignore it or you get rid of the person. And unfortunately, in churches for a long time, that's what we've done as a culture. We either ignored it, or we kicked them out. That's that's difficult. That is difficult to do, to kick somebody out. And Matthew 18 may end you there at some point. But this is how I interpret that text. How are we supposed to treat Gentiles and tax collectors? See, we don't even have these phrases in our culture. Tax collector? You mean like the IRS? (laughs) I don't even know anybody who works for the IRS. Sometimes I know some seasonal guys, but that's about it. And who's a Gentile to me? I am the Gentile. (laughs) What we're talking about is those who don't follow God. How are we commanded to treat those who don't follow God? We're commanded to love them. We're commanded to witness to them. We're commanded to call them to repentance and belief in Christ. Who should do the kicking out? Not me. Not you. God will remove those who are not truly believing in him and won't of repent of sin and reject His holiness. God will remove them, just as He did Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. God will remove. But God has brought so many opportunities. He's brought so many people to us for us to practice Matthew 5, loving our neighbor, blessing even those who are enemies and persecute us. I found the modern church's sin is ignorance and ignoring the opportunities God has brought. That we ignore the ones, even sitting in our churches sometimes, who need help, who need fellowship, who need love. And and we just, out the door, see you next week. Now, I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to be honest with the text. This is low-level wisdom. This is not mature. This is not spiritual. In fact, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, said, If I don't have love, I can have all knowledge and understand all mysteries. That's what the flesh wants. The flesh wants to understand all mysteries. Be the smartest one in the room. But Paul said, none of that matters. None of my education matters. None of what I've done in the past matters. Not what I used to do matters. All that matters is that I love right now, in this moment, with the love that God has given to me, commanded me to share with others, and provides for me daily. That's what matters. Now, loving doesn't mean we approve of sin. In fact, very opposite we call repentance. But love does mean we spend time with people that otherwise you wouldn't want to. Otherwise would be very disagreeable, especially for us introverts. Amen? I got some introverts in here. Yeah. It is. It's hard. But God will provide the way. If you would, turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I hope that I am challenging you this week. My heart was pricked studying this this week. And I hope that yours is as well. This is not an attempt to make you feel bad. Right? This is an attempt rather to say, this is where we should be going. This is where we should be growing. This is where God is. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 3. Once again, the importance of God's Word is brought up, and that's going to be a theme running through this entire message, as you'll see. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now, notice what he says here, a different doctrine. He means Jesus Christ is the only Savior, John 14, 6, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father except by Him. If someone else says, oh no, you can get to heaven a different way, you don't need Jesus, that is a different doctrine. We are not talking about the different ways we interpret text and view things as brothers in the church, and we're going, man, I'm not sure, I don't quite agree with what you think, but I see it this way. We're not talking about that. In fact, that's the fun stuff of studying the Bible. We're talking about Jesus isn't God. He isn't the only way. That's what the world is saying. That's what these false teachers are preaching. They're puffed up with conceit, and they understand nothing. Do you know what the best thing I can understand as a Bible reader is? Jesus does it. I don't. Jesus gets the credit. I do not. Jesus deserves the glory. I do not. That's the best thing I can do. That's the best way I can read the Bible. Because otherwise I'm puffed up with conceit and I understand nothing. Verse 4 goes on. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil position, uh, suspicions. Once again, we are not talking about... The way you and someone else are viewing Revelation, and you're trying to figure out what that means in chapter 19, how that flows into chapter 20, that's not what Paul is saying. He's talking about the false preachers who have come into the early church, the former Jews who said, no, you do have to be circumcised, that Jesus, that's not, only, not the only way, you do have to do circumcision too. And then he had the 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 other people coming in, the ones who were preaching completely false gospels saying, Jesus has already returned. He's over here. He's over there. You've got to go somewhere else. You can't trust the Word. You have to go somewhere else. Verse 5, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. If you don't think the Bible has great writing in it, just read that sentence again. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Why are they deprived of the truth? Because they're depraved. They have not yet repented. Sin and bitter jealousy have consumed them. Do you see where that consuming leads to? These people are constantly talking about Jesus, and they get it wrong every time. How sad to be a student of the Bible and come away with the exact opposite message that that Bible is teaching. And There are many living their lives this way. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. We have to be so careful that our understanding is not puffed up by selfish ambition. That even us preachers who read the Bible for a living, who try to learn the original languages, who do all that stuff... Don't do it so that we can stand in front of you and go, I know the real Bible that you guys don't have. It's foolishness. It's evil. Do you know the best way to understand the Bible is? It's not to know the original language. The best way to understand the Bible, like let's say a particular verse, just one verse, it's not to know the original language. It's not to have a degree in hermeneutics or any kind of biblical training whatsoever. The best way to understand one verse is, is read the verse before and read the verse after. And that may not be enough. You might have to read the chapter before and after. You might have to get to the whole book before and after. But when you read the entire and complete thought of what God is saying, that is the best way to understand the Bible. Now, God hasn't called everyone to hermeneutics class or to learn Koine Greek, right? But what has He done? called every person to study His Word. And you mean God in his infinite wisdom has already given you the tools you need to do the thing he's commanded you to do? That's a pretty smart God. (laughs) I would say it's a pretty holy God. You can't bring anything into this world. And you can't take anything out of the world. The human mind is only unspiritual. If you take notes, write that one down. The human mind is only unspiritual. Your thoughts, your emotions, and desires are at their origin and starting point sinful and deceived unless they are guided by Holy Scripture. Do you see this dividing line that's happening now? This fault line that's breaking a divide between those who trust God's Word and those who do not? Because the ones who don't trust God's Word, this is what leads to disorder. Disorder is the opposite of God's intentions for worship. Blue again says in his commentary, Envy and selfish ambition or rivalry can only produce disorder, confusion, and every evil practice. A truly wise person does not seek glory or gain, but rather he is gracious and giving. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Quite a famous text but for our purposes, very, very insightful. While you're turning there, I'd like to just talk about this letter for a minute, 2 Timothy, probably Paul's last letter. I've read Bible scholars believe that he wrote it very, very close to his death. Now, no one knows for sure, but when you read this letter and you see this man pouring his heart out on his disciple, when he says things like, I fought the good fight, I finished the faith, I am poured out as a sacrificial offering. I'm about to die. No one truly knows how Paul's life ended. Church history records that the Romans beheaded him around the time of Nero. Before or after, not exactly sure of the exact date. They say that he ran to the chopping block, and his hands were untied but willingly laid his head down. No one knows if that's true or not, but it is a nice story. What we do know are his final instructions here to Timothy in this letter. Especially for our purposes this morning, chapter 4, verse 3. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, we have tried for so long and so hard at Joppa Baptist Church to run from this, to get away from our passions dictating us. And I believe we've done a great job, and we've had. Really solid teaching for a long time now. There are churches out there who are doing this. I have been in some of them. I've seen some of them. I've visited some of them. And I'm not up here to say that, oh, look how great we are. Look how bad they are. No, if we abandon this text, we will easily fall into that. Easily. But a time is coming, a time is here. When people will not endure sound teaching. What's sound teaching? You are depraved and you need to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. That's sound teaching and people don't want to hear that. So instead, they have itching ears. I don't like what you're saying. I like this over here. And they will accumulate for themselves teachers. We'll go find somebody that I like. And we're not talking about style. education, or anything like that. We're talking about, I want a teacher who's going to make me feel good. Now, there are times when preaching the Bible, you get to make people feel good. There are times, kind of like today, when you make them feel a little bad. You hope it's more of the one and not the other. But these people, what this verse is saying is they will go find a teacher to suit their own Passions. What did we learn just a few minutes ago about my passions? If they're not from Scripture, they're earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. They're evil. I'll go find an evil teacher to suit my evil passions. And that's why you see some of these churches that people are flocking to. And I'm sorry, but it's not preaching, it's not gospel that's happening, it's not worship, it's not really church. God may be the subject. It's no different than any other worldly gathering if the gospel is not preached, if his word is not broken open like bread and distributed like Jesus did. They suit their own passions. And verse 4, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Myths. It's amazing to me the modern mythology that we have right now in our country, in our culture, and pretty much the world. Do you know who most people would identify as their their savior now and their myth? It's Captain America from the Marvel movies. It's Iron Man. He sacrificed himself so we all could live. Yay. That's the modern myth of the 21st century. Iron Man and Captain America are no different than Zeus and all the rest. It's just mythology. And people have wandered off into these myths. Think about the myths of the Bible. The world wants so desperately to find some copy of the Bible in the desert where the last page says, and all these fake stories were written by the king to entertain his son and are totally not real at all. That's what they want. Because if there really is a God, then I have to reckon with that fact. But if there isn't one, that means I'm God. Now I only have to reckon with what I want. And that's a passion to suit me. As for you, so that's them. That's people who abandon the Bible and look at the clear dividing line. You either believe this is from God or you don't. As for you, those of you who do believe it's God's word, be sober-minded. Be ready with a clear mind. Endure suffering. In our modern world, the fact that you're willing to endure suffering is a pretty good indicator of real Christianity. Do the work of an evangelist. You know what I just thought about? This might, this might help us feel just a little bit good. Have you ever heard, you know, about churches, their AC goes out and, and people are like, oh, I'm not going to church then if there's no AC, this and that, da-da-da. You know, I've never actually experienced that. I've never heard of that happening even. In fact, in my own experience, I've known churches that have met outside in the heat, and I've known this church where the storm comes and knocks out the power, sometimes in the middle of service, sometimes right before service, and nobody got up and left. Nobody got up and left because the AC was out. Not a single person. In fact, it kind of becomes a little fun. The TVs aren't aren't working, and the microphone doesn't work, and there's, there's no lights, and trying to read your Bible, right? It's like a little camp out, you know? Because for we who believe God's word is true, we're willing to endure suffering, much less AC being out. Do the work of an evangelist. Not everybody's called, maybe it's a pastoring or elder, or even teacher, but everybody's called to evangelize. Everybody's called to make a witness. Fulfill your ministry. Now, in a very broad sense, that ministry is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how does that look like in your life? Because I'll tell you what, when Paul said we're all made up of one body and the toe doesn't direct the head, but the toe should not feel less than the head, you might be this person on stage. You might be leading the worship. You might be running the computer. You might be tithing so all those people can do what they do. You might be cooking. You might be cleaning. You might be uh, organizing Bible studies. You might be even right now on a trip with your Bible study, as my wife is. Fulfill your ministry. What is your ministry? And God will give your ministry changes over time. I think a lot now of some of our elderly folks who jokingly talk about, like, I don't do much anymore physically. But God has given them spiritually the mind of what He wants and the spiritual mind to know where the church should go. I told somebody one time, I said, do you know how valuable it is to me to have people who are, have been Christians longer than I've been alive? I've got some people been Christians longer than my parents have been alive. Do you know how valuable that is? That's a crown of glory. The wisdom of God in such a heart and mind of serving Him for more than 50 years, the, the value of that is immeasurable. Fulfill your ministry. I'll finish with this. It says, "Any time we leave the Scripture, we wander off into myths. And I caution you against that. Not to be harsh on you again, but when you leave this book, it's an error. When you get back to the book, you are correct. For those things are simple. Doing them every day is a little more difficult. This is a sentence that I wrote. It's not a commentary but take it for how good it might be. Order is found, true spiritual order is found when my life is submitted to the Word of God. And on that, let's pray. Dear Lord, once again we thank you for even when the Word may be harsh with us, Lord, calling out our bitterness and our selfish ambitions, calling out our earthly wisdom that is unspiritual and even demonic, Lord, the gentle guidance of Christ brings us back to Him. John chapter 1 says that He is the Word, Lord, and was with God in the beginning, and in fact is God. Scripture is alive and living and active because it is Jesus. Lord, that's why when it cuts, it cuts so deep. But that's why when it heals, it heals completely. Lord, let this Word not depart from me. Let any cultural thing not distract me. Let my own thoughts and my own feelings be submitted to this Word at all times. No matter if I feel so strongly and so emotionally and so justified in in an idea or a concept, if the Word of God says different, I immediately recognize my error and I repent and I correct myself to His Word. Lord, the real myth is that I have thoughts worth considering. That's the myth. My thoughts are evil. The truth, Lord, is that your thoughts, your ways, your desires, and your words are the only thing that is right. And when I live and walk and fulfill my ministry in them, I do well. So, Lord, help us today at Joppa to continue our streak of sound teaching. Lord, I can't can't even fathom the blessings of this church. Looking around these rooms on Sundays and Wednesdays and Fridays. Lord, the Bible studies that happen throughout the weeks on different nights. Seeing these wonderful saints you have collected here. Lord, what a joy and a blessing. And let us now use all these talents, Lord. Let us not bury them in the sand. Lord, in fact... It is my prayer, and this may be the most challenging thing I've said today, but Lord, I believe that there are some in here whose whose next phase of ministry is about to explode. The different roles that you are about to create and give them, the things you have been preparing them for even right now, Lord Jesus, I believe you're going to expand it, you're going to blow it up, it's going to be incredible. But it won't be because of what we did. It'll be because of what you have done. And when we submit to your word, we will know that we are in the thoughts of God. We will know that we are walking the true path of righteousness. We will know we are fulfilling the will of our Father. And for that, we say thank you. Amen.